Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. We've been doing this series called Follow Me, speaking about discipleship about us being disciples, about the fact that being a Christian really means being a follower of Jesus, not just a follower of some teachings, not a follower of philosophy, not just someone who subscribes to a specific worldview, but somebody who genuinely, wholeheartedly, authentically, and faithfully follows after a person called Jesus. It's such a privilege beyond what we can express that we get to follow Jesus, that we get to have the Holy Spirit present in our lives, speaking to us. Jesus said, I must go to the Father so that I can send you another helper, capital H. And he will remind you of all the things that I've taught you. And he is the one who will guide you into all truth. Isn't that amazing that this morning we don't have to wonder about truth. We don't have to try and figure out what's true and what's not as the rest of the world does on a daily basis, but we can be guided into all truth by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is made real to us. We get to encounter Him and experience Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in that way, this is not a religion. It's not a program. It's not a protocol. It's a person that we get to follow, that we get to speak to, that we get to have fellowship with, that we get to hear from, that we get to be led by and protected by in every moment of every day. God is with us. God is with us. I don't know how many times a day I just kind of in my own heart or just under my breath mouth, Jesus, help me. Whether it's me parenting my kids <laughs> or sitting in traffic or figuring something out, just Jesus, help me. I'm just so aware of the fact that he's with us. And this gives us courage to take on big things in life, to be true followers, to, to live a life of reckless abandon. So this morning, I want to share a message with you entitled Reckless Abandon. If you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, then you can write that down. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, you can take it out and open it up. I'm going to go to Luke 22, not right now, but in a moment. Um, but, but you can open up there so long in the, the book of Luke, chapter number 22. Um, but when we, when, we, when we strip away all of the add-ons, all of the additions, all of the complicated programs and pursuits, this journey ultimately comes down to us following Jesus. That was his invitation. Come to me, follow me, and I will make you. And so this morning, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we taking time to allow God to lead our lives? Are we allowing Jesus to be the one that directs our program, that directs our schedule, that directs how we spend our money, that directs the decisions that we make, our career choices, our, you know, our, our movements, everything that we decide on a daily basis. Are we allowing Jesus to be the one who is our rabbi? who is our discipler, who is our leader? Are we allowing God to be Lord in our lives and following Him, him as the one who, who knows it all, as the one who has all wisdom and, and has infinite insight and knows the, all that is to come? Are we following Jesus? Because what a lot of us do, and I've done this many times in my own life, is that 
we say that we worship Jesus, but really we're the Lord of our own lives, and we decide what we want, and then we go to God to try and get His approval for what we've decided we want for our own lives. Come on, have any of you ever done that? Like, you know, you've decided, this is it. This is what I want. And then we go to God and we say, God, please, this is what I want. Can you just bless this? Can you just say that this is okay? You know, that's the girl I want to marry, Lord. That's the one. I'm telling you there's no one else. That's the one. Can you just bless this, God, please? I've already decided. I've made my mind up, you know. And we, we kind of go before God like this. And, 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 and as pastors, people do this with us as well. They come to us with questions, but they've already decided what the answer is. They just want to make sure we're going to give the same answer. And they get upset when we don't give the same answer. I remember a young guy that came to me, asked me if we could go for coffee, and we sat down, and he shared a story with me about a girl that he connected with in the workplace. Um, but at the time that they became friends and started to hang out, she was engaged. And they really hit it off so much so that they believed that they were soulmates, but she got married anyways. And then he was sitting with me, asking me legitimately the question, is it okay if I still continue to hang out with her? And I was like, absolutely not. 100% delete her number, never speak to her again. She's a married woman. And, and, and he started crying. We were sitting in a restaurant and he started crying and he was you know, so upset. And I was like, what did you think I was going to say? Like, what was your, you know, how, how differently did you see this conversation going? Like, obviously, you know, you know what, what, what is right. You know what is wrong. You know what, how we value the covenant of marriage and what it means to be one with another. And, and there's no way that you can do that. And like the rich young ruler that I'll mention in a moment, he went away sad. He went away sad because he had a great possession in this relationship that he had to come to terms with that this was no longer God's will for his life. It wasn't God's will for his life, but, but it wasn't the answer that he wanted from me. And so, so many times as pastors, people come to us wanting us to rubber stamp whatever they've decided they want to do. Like, I'm going to live with my boyfriend even though we're not married, but that's cool, hey, pastor. That's fine, am I? No, it's not fine since you're asking. It's not fine. It's not okay. And then, and then they're, they're upset because their sin isn't church approved, right? And we do this with God as well. We, we get involved with situations. We want God just to rubber stamp, but we're not really submitting all of our plans to God. The Bible says, take all of your plans and all of them seem right to you. <laughs> you know, it wouldn't be your plan if it seemed wrong. All of our plans, the plans of a man's heart, seems right to him. But God is the one who makes our path straight. And so we are to bring our plans to God and say, you are Lord of my life. You are God of my life. Will you make my path straight? I submit these plans. Not just, not just coming to Jesus and saying, God, this is everything that I think I want out of life. Please, will you make it happen? Thanks. And then getting upset when it doesn't happen. The context, the Bible does say that, that we are to bring our requests before God. And so God isn't saying that you shouldn't ask, that you shouldn't dream, that you shouldn't have needs or shouldn't have wants in life. There are many things that, that I've said to God, God, I don't know if this is your will, but I want it. Like seriously, I want it, you know. 
But the context there or the way that we submit that to God is through submission. God, I want it, but if you, don't, if you know that it's not the best for me, I trust you. You see how that's different? You can make every request. What do you want? You want a Ferrari? Ask God. But he might say no. But then he might have something else for you. He might feel like that Ferrari won't be the best thing for you. You know what I mean? I'm using that as a, Ryan's like, please, Lord, please. I just need this in my life, right? And God might be like, Ryan, you're not going to be a nice person when you're driving that Ferrari. So I'm not going to let you have it. Kelly's going to be scared on the highway. You know, we do not have the wisdom of God. We do not have his insight into the future. And so even when we don't understand, we're to trust. That's what a true disciple does. You know, I've followed and submitted to many leaders in my life. And we know that any earthly leader that we can follow and submit to are imperfect, right? And they will make mistakes. And we're still called to, to submit in reverence to Christ. But the great thing about being a follower of Jesus is that he is perfect. He'll never mislead you. He'll never misguide you. He'll never do anything in your life that is negative or that will have a negative end. In the end, all things work together for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so we can make our requests known to God, but we make it known as an act of submission. This is how Jesus did it in Luke 22, verse 41. I want to read that scripture. In Luke 22, verse 41, Jesus had his own time of prayer. And it says, And he withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Isn't that incredible that in his humanity, there was something that Jesus wanted that was at ends with what the Father wanted. He, he had a desire that nece didn't necessarily line up with the plan and the mission and the vision of God for his life. And so in prayer, he submits his request. He says, God, is there any way you can remove this cup from me? Nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's a powerful pattern of prayer right there for all of us. God, this is what I long for. God, this is what I desire. I make it known, but ultimately, God, I submit my life to you. It's a powerful way to pray, pray because what it shows is our trust in Jesus. It says that when Jesus went to pray, he knelt down. That's, that's a, a sign or a symbol of submission. He's kneeling before the Father saying, this is what I want, but not my will, yours be done. And it's born from this trust and this understanding that God is the God of all wisdom, that He's omniscient, that He knows the future, that He has a plan for your life, and that anything that He has for you is infinitely better than any plan you could have for yourself. You see, it's when we trust that that we're able to submit. Do you believe this morning that even if God has said no to something in your life, that it's because He's saying yes to something even better? Some of us get so caught up in the no that we miss the yes. The yes, God is for you. The Bible says in Christ we don't have a yes and a no, but a resounding yes. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Him. God has got a great life for you. Don't get stuck on the no before you know the yes. Before you know what God is saying yes to 
instead. I saw a video this week and I, I chuckled. I actually watched it a, a few times over. But there's a, there's a young boy who decides he's going to run away from home in this video. And it's caught on kind of a, a security camera. And the boy walks through the front door and he turns around and he shouts to his dad, Dad, I'm running away. I'm leaving. And he slams the door and he starts marching down the driveway. And the dad comes out and he says, Dalton, what are you doing? And the boy turns around and he says, you said you don't love me. And the dad says, I never said I didn't love you. He said, yes, you did. He said, no, I said, switch off your PlayStation. It's time for bed. And the boy shouts out, same thing. <laughs> and dad's like, how are you going to run away with a skateboard and a Minecraft sword? Get back in here. I just thought, that is so us. God's just like, hey, just switch off your PlayStation. It's time for bed. You said you don't love me. How often do we do that? When God says no, we turn it into, God doesn't love me. I'm running away. I'm, I'm, I'm going in another direction. God, I want this. God says, I have something better for you. You don't love me. I'm running away. And God says, I never said I didn't love you. That's one thing we can be confident of this morning. The love of God for us is unconditional. It never ceases. It never changes. Even when we don't know. That's the idea of following Jesus. That when the disciples left their nets, when those who were called by Him left everything behind to follow Him, they didn't know what's next. And sometimes in our lives, we don't know what's next. But we know who's leading us. Our faith is in Him not in what we can see. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes from him, he says, God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. When we cannot trace the hand of God in our lives, we can't see what he's doing. We don't know what's next. We can trust in the heart of a God who loved us so much that he sent his only son to die on the cross for us. That should settle in our hearts once and for all. The love of God for us. That should dissipate, cause all anxiety and, and fear and uncertainty and stress to dissipate in our lives. Because we know this love that God has for us. It's the antidote to all fear and uncertainty. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's making and mission, following and fishing that are inextricably linked here. As we follow Jesus, He awakens us to the great purpose that He has for our lives. Not just trying to make sure we do enough things so that we diminish the fear. The fear of not having enough. The fear of not being enough. The fear of not uh, you know, achieving enough. The fear of not being significant enough. When, when we hear the voice of Jesus, He awakens us to our worth and also to our mission. To not only be followers, but to make followers of others. To not only be a disciple, but to be a disciple maker, making disciples of others, fishers of men and followers of Jesus. And so I want to look at some of the moments 
And I was going through this, all those moments where Jesus was calling people to be followers, to be true disciples, and his call to make disciples today. And I want to just look at three specific things that I picked up in the scriptures uh, in these invitations of Jesus. The first one is that disciples practice reckless abandon. What does that mean? Disciples practice as a way of life, as a way of being, as a way of faith, reckless abandon. It means that we respond to the call of Jesus without reservation. We're not holding anything back. We're not, we, we're not storing up a nest egg somewhere. Again, another counseling situation I had with a, a, a couple in premarital counseling. And during the conversations, it turned out, it came out that there was a bank account that the girl had that this prospective husband had no idea about. And, you know, as it came about, he was like, well, that's interesting, you know. And, 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 and so now there's a moment to talk about this. And she said, you know, my, my mom taught me or my grand taught me or somebody taught me that that a girl should always have her own nest egg. That's not going all in. That's not reckless abandon. That's not saying I'm committed to this relationship. When you feel like you need a plan B. No, when it comes to the call of Jesus, we don't make plan Bs. We don't have backup plans. Because we go all in for the gospel. We go all in because of our trust, because of our commitment. And in this way, the Bible says that, that our relationship with Jesus, the closest uh, example of it that we have in this world is marriage. And you know, when you make your vows and when you stand at the altar and you make your vows, we make a commitment to, and I love this line, forsaking all others. Forsaking all others. I was telling some people this week that when I, when I saw my wife, Lee, it was like every other woman on the planet kind of just blurred. It's cute, hey, babe? She was the only one that I could see. She was the only one that I wanted to commit to. I had no plan B. And our relationship with Jesus is like that. We abandon everything else, all hope that we have placed in other things, all other pursuits that we had looked to to give us fulfillment and, and give us satisfaction in life come second to this great relationship with Jesus, our fulfillment, our worth, our significance, our everything. And so we have no plan B. There's reckless abandon. It means letting go completely of anything else so that we can hold fast to the one who saved our souls. When Jesus called James and John, he didn't call them in a vacuum. We've looked at the scripture now a few times in Matthew 4, but when he called them, he, he came up to them and they had a context. They had a profession. They were fishermen. They were mending their nets. They had spent all night out on the seas fishing and they were preparing to go out again the next night. And in Matthew 4 verse 19, we see how Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. There's the invitation to follow and immediately it says, they left their nets. They left that context behind. They left those things and they followed. I found an example of this, a great example in the Old Testament as well, when Elijah 
called Elisha to be a follower of him, to be his disciple. Again, this is an Old Testament concept of following a rabbi so that you may learn from him personally and be discipled by him personally. And we have a model of discipleship. Even in the Old Testament, this was God's way. As what God has done in me, I'm able to journey with you so that it can multiply, it can replicate. That was God's first commandment to man. Be fruitful and multiply. God is a replicating God. He's a multiplying God, a God of multiplicity. He wants us to be able to take the, what He has done in us and multiply the effect in others so that other lives could be changed and so that we could have the blessing of being a part of that process with God. In the Old Testament, Elijah comes up to Elisha. Elisha's got a day job. He's busy plowing oxen. How, how many of you are glad that this moment of calling happened even in the life of Elisha. How many, how many scriptures would we miss out on? How many words would we, how much less would we have in the Bible if it wasn't for the fact that God called people out of what they were a part of into a greater calling? And here Elijah does that with Elisha in 1 Kings 19 verse 19. And so it says, so he departed, talking about Elijah from there, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. So that was an Old Testament symbol of saying that the cloak and the anointing that is on my life, I want to cover you in that same calling. And this is a spiritual thing. This is a Holy Spirit-led thing. Elijah didn't just run around throwing his clothes on people. right? It wasn't like every second, like, you get a cloak, you get a scarf, you, know, you get a sock. Like, why do I get the sock? Lesser anointing. No, he, there's a, a spiritual moment here where there's a commissioning of Elisha's life. Elijah is moved by the Spirit. He takes his cloak off and he throws it on Elisha and he just keeps walking. Just keeps walking. Imagine if I did that to you here on a Sunday morning. Just, you know, took my jacket off, threw it on you, just kept walking. Like, why did he give me his jacket? Does he, do I look cold? Like, what is the context here? But Elisha understands. So it says that he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me just kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah looks at him and says, go back for what have I done to you? What, you know, I'm not stopping you from living life the way you want to live it. And so Elisha returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrifice them, literally slaughters them, boils their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, all of it together, and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Elisha's like, this is not my call. This is the call of God. You decide whether you're going to be obedient or not. What have I got to do with you? I'm just doing what God told me. I said, yeah, here's my cloak, follow. You decide what to do next. Elisha goes back. He doesn't just like let the oxen off into pasture. He's like, no, no, no. Because if I let them off into the field, I could come back. If I keep the yokes, I could come back and I could find some more oxen and just get back to my day job. So he slaughters the oxen and burns the yokes. He has no plan B. It's reckless abandon. I'm all in. Elijah, where are we going? I'm a disciple now. I'm following now. Immediately they left their nets. He went back and slaughtered the oxen. There's no turning back. I love that old hymn that says, I've decided 
to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. No turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. This is what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. We don't have backup plans in case this doesn't work out. We've given it all because the one who has called us is worthy. It's not something we do half-heartedly. We place all of our trust in Jesus and we depend on him for every moment. And if you look at some of the occasions where Jesus was calling people to follow him or where people said they wanted to follow him, he made the cost of that call abundantly clear. Let's look at some occasions here. Luke 9, verse 59. Everybody wants to follow Jesus, but they only wanted to do it when it was fashionable, when cool stuff was happening. You know, when, when, when it was a promise of just great adventure and excitement. And so Jesus made them aware of the fact that following him might mean facing some persecution. It might mean some difficulty. It might mean that you need some grit. It might mean that at times it's going to be hard. But he promises to be with us. Luke 9, 59, it says to another, he said, follow me. So Jesus calls him, follow me. But he, saw, he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Don't get stuck because of loss. Go and do what I've called you to do. Go and what does it look like to follow Jesus? It means that you are proclaiming the same message he proclaims. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Some strong statements here of, of what it really means to, to leave it all behind. It means that there is nothing more precious than the person of Jesus in your life. Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't love our families and that we shouldn't, you know, uh, honor and respect them. But, but he is saying that unless you make me the number one priority in your life, unless you genuinely and authentically follow me, everything else is, is, is purely going to be a, a front or a facade. It's not genuine following. I need to be the Lord of your life if I'm going to be able to lead you. How often do we say this? Lord, I will follow you, but let me first. I'll follow you, God. I know there's a call on my life, but let me first build my career. Then I'll follow you. Lord, I, I want to follow you and I want to hear your voice, but let me first um, find a husband. When I find a husband or when I find a wife, then, then I'll be in a good position to follow you. God, I'll follow you. I'll come to church. I'll serve. I'll lean in. But let me first just, you know, get my kids a little bit older so that they're not so difficult. Then I'll follow you. All the Lord, let me first. And what happens is what becomes I will, it ends up being I'll never. We've seen this a thousand times. If Jesus is not a priority in your life right now, as your life is currently in your current context and setup and complications and everything that is to do with your life, then don't expect that later on things will change. 
follow me, Jesus says. And he, he's not begging you. Like Elijah, he's not going, please follow me. Please, please. I really want you. Please. Okay. Can you just go say goodbye to your dad real quick? And then, and, and then can you, and then please, you can build your career. And then I'll be waiting for you. Please come and follow me. Jesus just says, follow me. And he goes. And it's your decision. He said, what? you heard the call. What do you want to do next? Do you want to follow me? Jesus, I just want to enjoy my youth first or make some money first and then I'll follow. No. Put your hand to the plow. Put your hand to the plow. Let those things, the, the things that are not filled with life, the life that God has for you, let them take care of themselves. You come follow me. It's a powerful reorganizing of our lives that causes us to become genuine followers of Jesus. We, you know, I was speaking to, to some of my staff this week, and I was just saying, I just wish people would choose where they're going to go to church, where they're going to serve, where they're going to commit, based on where Jesus told them to commit, as opposed to the place that has the best prospective future spouses. I'm committed to anchor. Talent is lacking. Uh, no, I'm committed to the next church. It's like, do you really trust Jesus then? Guess what? That next Sunday after they left, their husband walked in here and they weren't here to meet him. I'm just kidding. I don't know if that's true. Um, <laughs> but where's our trust, church? Where's our faith? Jesus speaks right to the heart of this. He says, no. Don't turn back. Proclaim the kingdom of God. Put your hand to the plow. Respond in faith. Leave the rest behind. Have you left it all behind this morning to follow Jesus? It's a process sometimes. I know that sometimes I still have to ask myself that question. Are there still things that I look to rather than to Jesus for what I feel I need in life? In Mark 10, 21 to 22, Jesus looked at a rich young ruler, and it says he loved him. You see, Jesus isn't saying stuff to us because he doesn't love us. It's because he does love us that he calls us to this great call. And looking at the rich young ruler, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Jesus is trying to get him to shift his, his worth in life and his safety in life from an earthly safety found in wealth that is here today and gone tomorrow and find eternal security in a relationship with Jesus. And again, it says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He was sad about these things. His heart was connected to him, and so he became disheartened. He missed the opportunity to be one of the people who followed Jesus in the flesh. What a, an incredible thing to be remembered for. Instead, he's remembered for one who walked away. And, and we don't know, possibly after this, we don't know what, what could have happened in his life. And I like to believe that he came to his senses and he realized how that, that, that money is like sand or like water that just drips through, through your fingers. If you ever try to take some, some water from a tap and, and 
you always feel confident that you'll be able to get a good amount of water to the place that you want to carry it to. And when you get there, it's always nothing. And there's just a trail from the bathroom or from the tap. Wealth is like that. There's nothing to put your, your, your hope in. But in Christ, we have an eternal hope. And so the call to discipleship is a call to reckless abandonment. Number two, what I noticed in these scriptures and what I believe being a follower of Jesus does for us is that it delivers us from the necessity of competing or comparing. Disciples don't compete or compare. Disciples don't compete or compare. And this is so tough in life. I can give you a little bit of inside information that even amongst church leaders, your seat at the table is often determined by the size of what you're leading. It's difficult to find relationships. It's difficult to find authentic friendships because there's a hierarchy based on what you've done or, or what success you've achieved. And, and it's just how humanity always creeps in and has a way of setting up structures that wouldn't necessarily be the structures that Jesus would have kept. Now, now, Jesus did have structure. He did have a group of disciples, and that's what he wanted to pour into. And they got his time. The multitudes got his touch. And even within his disciples, he had three that he specifically focused on, and that was part of his leadership development process and what he was doing based on their roles. But when he found them, they were fishermen. They were outcasts. So he didn't pick them on merit. But he related to them based on a call. And that's something completely different. But the beautiful thing about discipleship is that it allows us to leave the stage of comparison. We're no longer trying to keep up and act or impress others or, you know, or, or anything like that. It gives us an exit to the rat race. We have an exit to the rat race. And when the gospel hit my life. I remember tweeting out with, with all the pastors revving their engines, trying to imp impress each other. I remember tweeting this because it was just a picture that God gave me in a moment. And it was back when Twitter was still a thing. And, um, and, and I processed verbally. So I did this, but I said, I said there that all of you can rev your spiritual engines. I'm going to turn left and have an ice cream. And that was like such a thing for me. It doesn't, probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but, but the point is, is that I'm just out. I'm out of the game. I've got no one to impress. You guys can, you know, compare engines. I'm going to go and enjoy the rest that I have in Jesus. I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to love my family. I'm going to lead my church. I'm going to experience the goodness of God. I'm going to be faithful to do what He called me to do. You be faithful to do what He called you to do. I'll cheer you on. I'll pray for you. I'll bless you. But I'm not going to compete with you. Something I have to remind myself of as time goes on. As disciples, we only have one objective, and that's to be faithful to the one that we're following. Just be faithful. It's a recipe for true success in life. Don't do what others have done. Do what God is telling you to do. Obedience. Submission. You tell me what to do, God, I'll do it. This past week, I spent time at a farm and, and, and with uh, Paul Andrew from Liberty Church Global, 
and the Barnabas Network, and I got to hang out with him and his global executive pastor, and and some of their team from Eswatini. It was an incredible time, and and uh, the, the person who owns this farm, it's a ministry and a game farm at the same time. He 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 was. They were leading a kids ministry in Krugersdorp, and God told them to go and buy a game farm for people to come and hunt on as a ministry. And in that moment, I was like, yes, Lord. I'm going to buy a game farm for Jesus. And those animals can be out there dying for Jesus. What an incredible life. Old, Old Testament. We're going back to the Old Testament now. But what he did is they had a passion for children. They started a ministry called Reaching a Generation. And they started setting up orphanages, ministries, reaching kids. God gave them a heart for Zambia. And they started taking the the teenage girls. When you reach a certain age in a village, oftentimes those girls are sold for two or three hundred dollars to older men to become third or fourth wives at the age of 13. Never get to complete their education. They started setting up safe homes in Zambia that take all of those girls in and educate them. Let them finish their education and set them up to live a great life for God. You know how they fund all of that work? They reached in their fourth or fifth year 1.2 million children in South Africa and in Zambia. You know how it's funded? By the Americans that come out and hunt on their farm. All of that money goes into that ministry. It was just an income generator. And he told us how when God gave him the vision for it, people said, you're crazy. Imagine if that was our heart for the house, our vision Sunday, next, next, next year, January, end of January, 2022, I get up and I'm like, here's the vision, game farm. <laughs> You're crazy. But when God says something, he's pioneered something in a way that is now being replicated in other parts of the world with great success. Because God told him what to do. It doesn't always make sense. But when you're obedient, when you're a disciple, you're not trying to compare what have others done. You're you're able to become a true pioneer as Jesus leads you. And so it rescues us from the clause of comparison. John 21 verse 18. This is just one of my favorite Peter moments once again. Jesus has a word for Peter about what it's going to cost him to follow Jesus. And it's heavy. Right? He says, Jesus says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. So Jesus foretells Peter's death and how he will die and how it will not be natural causes. And so Peter receives this heavy word, wow, one day I'm going to die for the gospel. And so after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I love it. Jesus does not sugarcoat this as all. Hey, Peter, one day someone's going to kill you for the gospel. Your death will glorify me. Follow me. Can you imagine if we led with that on church? Like we lead with coffee. We lead with friendship and 
and, and great worship and, you know, finding a home. And Jesus leads with death. Hey, um, half of you in this room are going to die for Jesus one day, but let's do it. Join the church. <laughs> and so it's a heavy word. And then Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, John is writing this. And this is how he describes himself. Like, but Jesus loved me. You know, he's like, so, so, so he turns. So John is actually there. And Peter then turns and looks at John. I love this. And he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had also leaned back against him during the supper. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? <laughs> like, I have to die. I'm waiting for John's prophecy. What's going to happen to him? Is he going to die? Is he going to go through a rough time at least? Why am I the only one that has to suffer? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. How many journeys have been derailed because we've said, God, why am I not blessed like that one is? Why didn't you do the miracle for me like you did for her? Why didn't you, why didn't you come through for me the way that, that I wanted to? Why, why do they get that? And, and why does he get to do that? And why does she get to experience that? And why have you forgotten me, God? And, and, and God looks at us and he says, if it is my will to do something in their life, that's my will to do something in their life. What is that to you? We don't compete and we don't compare. There's one objective. You follow me. You see, we know now that God had a plan for John's life. He ended up being exiled to Patmos, but that's where he received the vision that we see in the book of Revelation. And so if it was God's will for John not to be put to death like all the other disciples were, but to be exiled so that God could continue to speak through him to the church, then that's God's will. He has the plan. He writes the plan. He executes the plan. We follow the plan. So rather than saying, well, what's happening in their lives, we just need to ask God, what are you doing in my life? What do you have for me? What is it to you? Our following cannot be determined or deterred by the following of others. We need to trust. Every journey is unique and is beautiful in its own right. And the idea is not that we shape our own journeys so that it fits into the mold of another. That is dishonoring to the call of God on your life. If I just cut myself out into the mold of some pastor that I see on TV, or I just turn this church into some model that I've heard about, I'm dishonoring the unique thing that God wants to do here and in me. So we honor the call by hearing God's voice for ourselves and following Him as He leads us. And there's incredible liberty in this because we're no longer trying to impress. We're no longer trying to compare. We're no longer trying to achieve. Our goal is not success, but faithfulness. That'll set you free. John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. I am. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you follow Jesus, you won't walk in darkness. There's light that you will walk in. And so faithfulness gives us success in what really matters. Being fishers of men, answering the call of God, sharing the gospel, living lives of genuine influence, and hearing the voice of God. John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, 
and I know them, and they follow me. That's just what the sheep do. They know the voice of the shepherd. And so that is how we get to live this incredible, unique adventure. We don't have to figure it all out. We simply hear the voice of God and we obey. And when Lee and I were sitting with this ministry, with this couple, with these pastors this past week, and he spoke to us about how God spoke, we asked the question, what else is God saying to us? What else is God asking us to do? Let's pray about it, hear from him, and do it. The great adventure that we've all been called to. And we can watch as God does infinitely more than anything we can ask, think, or imagine. Finally, disciples are faithful to make disciples. Disciples are faithful to make disciples. So we, we experience and we live and we practice reckless abandonment. We leave everything else behind. We then come to the place where we trust in Jesus with all of our hearts. And we hear his voice and we, we don't compete and we don't compare. We allow him to lead us. And in that great, unique adventure and journey, we allow God to speak to us like he spoke, like the Holy Spirit spoke to Jesus and said, select these fishermen, select this tax collector, select that person. Like the Holy Spirit spoke to Elijah and said, throw your cloak onto that Elisha, that man there standing by the oxen, throw your cloak on him. In the same way, we're able to hear the voice of God and create a context and a community where we can be discipling others. This is more than a good idea. This is the command of Jesus to every believer. In Matthew 11, sorry, in Matthew 28, verse 19 to 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Go make disciples. That's what we're called to, church. If we're going to follow Jesus, He says, well, therefore, go make disciples. That's how you know you're following me. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the commandment is that we will go and we will make disciples. We will teach others. Of all nations, that word nations there is not talking about geographical nations. It's talking about people groups. No one's excluded. Every race, every color, every creed, we are called to make disciples. We're called to reach. We're called to preach. We're called to proclaim. We're called to love. Then he says, once you've you've reached these nations, baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, so often when when we baptize people, we see it as kind of the the, uh, crescendo of their journey where they've now made this decision and now they stand before God and 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 they say, yes, I believe in Jesus and we all cheer for them and that's kind of that. But if you look at the baptism of Jesus and if you look at baptism in the New Testament, it was more than that. It was a commissioning moment. That is the moment when you come out of that water, you have a new mission. 
We're now sending you from the water into the plan and the purpose of God for your life. And what is that plan and purpose? That you would go and make disciples. You are now commissioned by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to go and live out the ministry that God has called you to. When Jesus came up from the water, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And that was the moment Jesus' ministry started. He didn't do a single miracle before that moment. And then his ministry started. It's a commissioning moment. When you're baptized, it's not just to say you believe in Jesus. It's to say that you've, say, you've said yes to the call. You've been commissioned for the call. And then as we disciple people, we teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded. There's a teaching. There's a leading. There's a guiding. There's a shaping, a training, and a raising that we are able to do. We can do it with our spouses, with our kids, with our friends, with those in our workplace. We can disciple the, God, the, the people that God has given us. But we can also start community groups. And we can bring more people in and teach them about Jesus. It's so natural. It's so natural. When I was 16 years old and I started to teach about Jesus at school, the courses that I wrote, my natural next step was just to bring as many of those people together into my home every single Wednesday night and to just keep teaching them. And I would personally write the lessons every week. I ran that group until I was out of school, probably five or six years. You can ask my mom. Some nights we had 35, 40 people in our home from school get dropped off. We had a, a, a Hindu girl who told her dad she was going for extra history lessons. It was history. It was his story. People were risking in some ways their lives to come and be a part of that group because we were making disciples and they wanted to be disciples. The majority of the people that were in that group are in full-time ministry today. There's nothing stopping you from opening your home and inviting people in and just sharing what God is sharing with you. Jesus says He would be with us as we do this. And so in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, my final scripture, Paul says, Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Let me help you take your next step in your journey with Jesus. And so this is how we are able to not just attend church, but be the disciples Jesus has called us to be. If we are disciples, we will make disciples. And we have an incredible platform to do that here at Anchor Church. And so we're trusting that our next community group semester that will be starting in February next year, will be the greatest one we've ever had. As we simply say yes to Jesus, to bringing people around the table or into the lounge or at the coffee shop or even on the, on the bike track or the park run, but connecting through relationship so that real conversations can begin to form from there. And this is how we will be able to make disciples and bring an impact to this nation beyond anything we could ever have imagined. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we pray.